Thanks for tuning in to the Sun Also Rises radio show. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. And for today's episode, we'd like to talk about an animal that in ancient Greece was generally called the camel leopard. And in Swahili today, it's called the twiga. But in the English-speaking world, we know it as the giraffe. And pretty much everything about a giraffe is unusual and large. Not just the long, long necks that let them walk the globe with their heads far above those of all other animals, but also the long, knobbly legs, the swishy tail, the huge eyes with those long lashes. There's also the blue alien tongue, and then there are the horns on its head, unlike those of any other animal, blunt stubs that are quite long and covered with skin, and they're never shed. The giraffe is so strange and beautiful that I think if I were from another planet and someone from Earth described a yeti to me and then described a hippocampus and then a giraffe and asked me to guess which one was real, I would think the yeti and hippocampus sounded more believable. Giraffes really seem like fairy tale animals in a lot of ways, but of course they are real. And in the first segment today, I wanted to talk about the giraffe's recurrent laryngeal nerve. This may sound like a strangely specific topic, but this nerve has become famous over the last decade or so because many experts say that it offers proof of evolution. They point to this nerve as a smoking gun. Case closed. There's no more argument or discussion needed. The question is settled. That's what many are saying. So this nerve starts on the base of the giraffe's brain, and its end organ is the larynx, or voice box, about two inches away. On the larynx, the nerve innervates small muscles that make sounds, and some tiny muscles that coordinate breathing and swallowing. So that all sounds straightforward enough, but here's the thing about it that has prompted evolutionists to write books and articles and to create documentaries about this nerve. Instead of going straight from the brain to the larynx, this nerve actually runs from the brain all the way down the giraffe's neck and into its chest, where it U-turns, and then runs back up the neck again. And then finally, it connects to the larynx. In large giraffes, instead of being two inches long, this nerve can be more than 16 feet long. So it's a very long route, and neo-Darwinists have been calling all kinds of attention to this, saying that if there were an intelligent designer, he would never have made this nerve so long. The most famous instance of this was on an episode of the British science documentary series called Inside Nature's Giants. This show features some of the biggest animals on Earth. Whales, elephants, giant squids things like that, and they have anatomists dissect them in front of a studio audience. So the show is quite popular, and a few years back, they had Richard Dawkins come on to oversee the dissection of a Rothschild giraffe. Richard Dawkins, of course, is an English evolutionary biologist. He's been called one of the finest minds in science, and he's also probably the world's most famous atheist. And, you know, he espouses quite a militant brand of atheism. But anyway, here's a clip of him 
overseeing this dissection and discussing the long path of the giraffe's recurrent laryngeal nerve. Straight back up again. Obviously a ridiculous detour. No engineer would ever make a mistake like that. So that was Richard Dawkins speaking on an episode of the British science documentary series, which is called Inside Nature's Giants. And uh, I also wanted to mention that this episode did not die after its TV broadcast. It was also uploaded to YouTube, where it keeps circulating and racking up, you know, hundreds of thousands of views every, uh, every year or two. And Dawkins is there overseeing the dissection. He's wearing an orange... I guess it looks like a biohazard suit almost to shield him from the viscera that could be uh, flung around during the dissection. And the anatomist who is actually doing the slicing there is Dr. Joy Reidenberg. She's holding the recurrent laryngeal nerve up for the live audience members and the camera to see its long and indirect path. And here she is talking about it. Interestingly, where it ends is pretty close to where it started. It started here, coming out of the brain. It really only needed to go about two inches. Yes, amazing. But it went all the way down and came yes. all the way back. Yes. This is not an intelligent design. No. An intelligent design <laughs> would be to go from here to here. Yes. <laughs> so the audience members are dazzled. They appear to be mostly young people, and they're looking on just wide-eyed and full of wonder as they you know, look at what they're being told is irrefutable proof that the giraffe could not have been created by an intelligent mind. At one point, the presenter of the show, a veterinary surgeon named Mark Evans, explains how this so-called ridiculous detour came about. It turns out the laryngeal nerve first evolved in fish-like creatures as a direct link from the brain to gills near the heart. Over millions of generations, this nerve gradually lengthened, each small step always simpler than a major rewiring to a more direct route. And they point out that it's not just in giraffes. This nerve takes the same indirect route in all known tetrapods on Earth, including humans. Each of us has this indirectly routed nerve. Of course, it isn't nearly as long in us as it is in giraffes since our necks are shorter, but it still constitutes what Dawkins calls a ridiculous detour. And uh, actually, I'll play one final clip from Dawkins here that kind of sums up a lot of the uh, neo-Darwinist view of this nerve. Remember that a designer, an engineer, can go back to the drawing board, throw away the old design, start afresh with what looks more sensible. A designer has foresight. Evolution can't go back to the drawing board. Evolution has no foresight. So because of that, Dawkins says that this nerve represents a mistake that no engineer with foresight would ever make. So there it is. The recurrent laryngeal nerve is a sloppy post-hoc workaround that nature just kind of cobbled together. It's an evolutionary kludge, an artifact left over from a primitive phase of life that provides no benefit to modern giraffes or people or any of the thousands of other creatures that this detour is found in. And it came about in a way that an intelligent creator with foresight would surely have avoided Dawkins and the others on this show are uh, far from alone 
in declaring that this nerve's detour proves that life came about not by design, but by chance. There's a long list of biologists, including Jerry Coyne, Neil Shubin, Carl Zimmer, and Kelly Smith, who have made this same basic point about this nerve. So, is the argument over? Is evolution real? And does this show that God doesn't exist? Well, actually, there's a lot more to this story. One fact that Dawkins and the other evolutionists don't typically draw attention to is that the recurrent laryngeal nerves are actually one of two sets of nerves that connect the brain to the larynx. The other is the superior laryngeal nerves, and they run directly from the brain to the larynx with no detour down into the chest. So Dawkins and the others should have asked, if one set of nerves is already going direct from brain to larynx, why do the recurrent laryngeal nerves take this apparently indirect route? Do they accomplish anything along this path to the chest? This is a really a crucial question, and its answer is a booming yes. To understand, we need to see where in the chest the recurrent laryngeal nerve is routed. Gray's Anatomy is the world's most well-known anatomical textbook, and it describes the exact path that the laryngeal nerve takes. It says, quote, The recurrent laryngeal nerve curves around the subclavian artery, or the arc of the aorta. So the nerve does not travel into the chest on some, you know, arbitrary, random path. It travels a specific trajectory that makes it hook around a segment of the aorta, through which blood leaves the heart and flows into the body. And notice what Gray's Anatomy says happens at this loop. It says, quote, As the nerve curves, it gives several cardiac filaments to the deep part of the cardiac plexus. So the nerve extends to the cardiac plexus. That's the big network of nerves in the chest. And there, some of its branches, or filaments, connect. These branches actually constitute part of the cardiac plexus, and they play a role in innervating the heart. So this nerve is not just designed to innervate the larynx. And then I'll read a little more from Gray's Anatomy. This is about uh, after the nerve has come down the neck, after it has connected to the cardiac plexus, after it has helped to innervate the heart, then it starts heading back up the neck, and Gray's says, quote, As it ascends in the neck, it gives off branches to the esophagus and branches to the muscular fibers of the trachea, and some to the inferior constrictor. End quote. So these are all areas that play a role in breathing, swallowing, or both. Critical functions for most every organism. And these are areas that are all innervated and coordinated, at least in part, by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. To hear Dawkins and the others discuss this nerve's path, you would think that it leaves the brain, runs haphazardly down into the abdomen, and then runs back up to the larynx where it finally connects once again to fulfill its only purpose. But the truth is that along that path, 
This nerve makes numerous important connections. And with these connections, the nerve helps multiple muscles operate in intricate conjunction with each other and accomplish several vital functions. Dr. Wolf Eckhard Lohnig, a biologist at Germany's Planck Institute for Plant Breeding Research, recently analyzed the recurrent laryngeal nerve's numerous connections and roles, and he offered a refreshingly clear-headed observation. He wrote that to accomplish such a wide range of innervations, the recurrent laryngeal nerve needs to be indeed very long. End quote. So this nerve, like the millions of other intricate parts of giraffes and people and all life on Earth, is clearly the creation of an incomprehensibly brilliant and powerful mind. So you have to wonder, with Dawkins and the other neo-Darwinists who call this nerve a smoking gun that proves evolution, you have to wonder, are they ignorant of the numerous important connections and functions accomplished by the nerve's um, very long route? They don't mention those to the dazzled spectators on Inside Nature's Giants or in the most pro-evolution books and articles on this topic. But how could these experts not know what is well-documented in the world's best-known anatomy textbook? Maybe in some cases omitting this crucial scientific information is just the result of ignorance. But in many cases, scientists are agenda-driven. And their agenda can come to overshadow their interest in true science. The lay educator Herbert W. Armstrong explained the origins of this kind of modern approach to science in his book, Mystery of the Ages. He explains that in the centuries leading up to the scientific revolution, the Roman Catholic Church reigned as the main authority and the, the main gatekeeper of knowledge for much of the Western world. And then after the advent of the printing press in the 15th century, knowledge began to be broadly diffused, and Catholic leaders often viewed scientists and their discoveries as a threat to their positions of power. These church leaders came to despise those who weakened their authority by proving that the church was wrong about such teachings as geocentrism and perfect heavenly bodies and things like that. So competition developed between the Roman Catholic Church and scientists. And for some scientists, the desire to undermine the church's authority became a driving motivation. And some went even further. In order to discredit the very foundations of religion, they began to try to eliminate a creator God. Mr. Armstrong wrote about this, writing, quote, In the vanity of their self-professed scholarly minds, they tried to work out a solution to the mystery of origins, existence, and life by reasoning out a self-satisfying materialistic explanation. End quote. And then from there, Mr. Armstrong explains that this was the reasoning that spawned the evolutionary theory. So it should really come as no surprise that modern proponents of evolution often study into a given matter with their conclusion already firmly in mind. Whatever they can contort into supporting the arguments for evolution, they loudly proclaim. 
Everything else they ignore, discard, or downplay. That's a big part of what is apparently at play with these evolutionary biologists who study the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Scientific integrity and even just a dash of, you know, humility would really compel these individuals to approach the study like, well, like scientists. That would mean observing, studying, assembling facts, and then drawing conclusions based on the complete picture of what is discovered. But instead, these self-professed scholarly minds, as Mr. Armstrong called them, they go about the whole thing backward. And in the process, their objectivity and integrity are eviscerated. Long before the evolutionary theory was hatched, the Apostle Paul talked about this kind of approach. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, he called it science falsely so-called. True science is objective. It is humble. It trembles before truth, giving up anything that is disproven and following where the facts lead, free of any agenda. But science falsely so-called wants to prove itself right, even if that's at the expense of truth. And that sometimes means presenting only half of the story, as evolutionists discussing the recurrent laryngeal nerve tend to do. And of course, it's not just with this nerve. In all areas of modern academia, those who believe in a creator God are increasingly bullied and silenced. There's a growing antagonism toward any individuals who don't submit to whatever the leftist orthodoxy at the time is. But instead of cowering in the face of this bullying by science falsely so-called, we can be confident that God is perfect, as Matthew 5, 48 says, and we can be sure that the people and animals that he created and all their components, including the recurrent laryngeal nerve, are not just haphazardly cobbled together. Biologically, the creation is very good. That's made clear in Genesis 1, 25, and 31. So each of us can really take on the attitude that David had toward God's creation. I don't think David knew about the recurrent laryngeal nerve in giraffes and people, but he knew that God was a brilliant and wonderful creator. And in Psalm 139, verse 14, he wrote, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. For the next segment here, we will stick to the topic of giraffes, these wonders of nature. And for this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Stop for a moment and think about your heart beating in your chest. Every time it beats, two to three ounces of blood are pumped into your arteries. Now imagine what would happen if your heart started pumping six to nine ounces each beat. Your blood pressure would triple. The increased pressure on your artery walls would cause you to feel dizzy and nauseated. Soon your vision would blur and you would develop a splitting headache. A spike in blood pressure this high would likely rupture the capillary walls surrounding your brain, causing immediate death. Thankfully, our hearts are not strong enough to maintain a blood pressure this high. 
But giraffes, on the other hand, have a blood pressure two to three times yours all the time. Their blood pressure has to be this high in order to move enough blood from their hearts up their eight-foot-long necks and into their heads. A giraffe's heart measures two feet long, weighs 24 pounds, and pumps 16 gallons of blood every minute. A problem arises, however, when the giraffe lowers its 96-inch-long neck to take a drink. As the giraffe's heart works with gravity instead of against it, a tsunami of blood rushes down the giraffe's neck straight into its head, causing the capillaries surrounding its brain to explode under pressure. Or at least that's what would happen were it not for five blood pressure regulating systems installed in the head and neck of giraffes, all working in perfect harmony to keep the giraffe alive. Trying to describe how these systems came to exist via natural selection poses a major headache for evolutionists. Before we can explore the awesome internal workings of the giraffe's neck, however, we need some background on the theory of giraffe evolution. Charles Darwin proposed the hypothesis for giraffe evolution most commonly believed, which goes something like this. Millions of years ago, the world was populated by giraffes with short necks like that of a deer or a cow. Among this population of short-necked giraffes, there were some with necks a few inches longer. Since these giraffes could reach the leaves of the trees they browsed upon more easily, they became healthier than the other giraffes and thus reproduced more offspring. Random mutations continued to favor giraffes with ever longer necks. Natural selection occurred again and again, favoring the longer neck giraffes. This cycle supposedly repeated over and over and over until millions of years later, giraffes evolved with the extended necks we see today. Yet the design of the giraffe's neck could not have evolved. When you really put pressure on the evolutionist theory, it explodes. Back now to our drinking giraffe. A giraffe's head does not explode from a blood pressure spike when it lowers its neck thanks to an elaborate hydraulic system that regulates the amount of blood moving through the neck at any given time. As soon as a giraffe begins to lower its neck, nerve endings in neck arteries detect the increase in blood pressure. These nerve endings then send an electrical signal to the brain to activate two blood flow regulating systems. The first system causes the artery walls to contract, and the second system causes a series of artery valves to close. Both of these reactions reduce the amount of blood throwing through the neck to the point where the blood pressure in the draft's neck is low enough not to cause any harm. Now remember, the theory of evolution is supposed to be completely undirected, with no end goal, no design in mind. Natural selection favors random mutations that are most beneficial. So the neck lengthening process, the artery contraction process, and the artery valve regulation process all had to evolve independently and simultaneously for the draft to survive. If all three systems did not develop simultaneously, the longer neck drafts would just have its head blown off the first time it went down to take a drink. And just like that, two million years of evolution goes down the drain. And these are not the only systems that they had to evolve simultaneously. Even if the giraffe were able to evolve both of the above regulatory systems simultaneously with the lengthening of its neck, 
it would pass out as soon as it raised its head from drinking. Why? Because now the blood pressure in its head would be too low. But there's another carefully designed engineering system that keeps it conscious and alive. Giraffes have a sponge-like network of capillaries surrounding their brains. This sponge holds blood in the head as its neck rises up. These capillaries are aided by two additional systems. First, valves in the veins heading down the draft's neck constrict blood flow, preventing blood from leaving the head too fast. And second, the heart does a double pump whenever the draft raises its necks in order to get enough blood back into its head. No problem, except for evolution, that is. Altogether, there are five separate systems that all would have to develop together as the draft's necks lengthened in order for the evolutionary theory to work. Each system would require millions of mutations in the draft's genome. Three changes in the genome in a single generation are generally fatal, so you can see how long this would actually take. And when you consider that only a minuscule fraction of mutations are beneficial— and that only a minuscule fraction of those mutations have anything to do with the blueprints for a sponge in your head, you see just how unprobable the evolution of even one of these regulatory systems is. And when you consider that all five systems had to evolve simultaneously, you see the odds of evolution are longer than the draft's neck, exponentially longer. The truth is there's no logical explanation for the ability of a giraffe to stay alive unless an intelligent creator designed it. The giraffe's neck is a great proof of our creator God. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Many thanks to Andrew Miller for his contribution to this episode, and many thanks to you for listening to the show today. Please send any comments or questions that you may have about the episode to tsar at kpcg.fm. And we'll leave you today with some words from Max Lucado. God must have had a blast painting the stripes on the zebra, hanging the stars in the sky, putting the gold in the sunset, What creativity. Stretching the neck of the giraffe, putting the flutter in the mockingbird's wings, planting the giggle in the hyena. And then as a finale to a brilliant performance, he made a human who had the unique honor to bear the stamp in his image. ¶¶